Hi, this is Father Bill W. here in Austin, Texas. I um, want to welcome you to this series we're doing on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I have been in recovery myself uh, since December of 1972. Uh, if I make it uh, another week or two, um, coming up on 46 years uh, in the program. Um, what has particularly interested me um, for a number of years has has been a study of the Oxford group, the pioneer members in AA, and I was really interested uh, in how it was that they worked the program uh, that was to eventually become uh, the 12-step program. Uh, hope you'll visit our website at uh, twowayprayer.org, and if you uh, do Facebook, I hope you'll follow me at Father Bill W., and um, we do... Uh, Lots of lots of uh, uh, sharings on two-way prayer there, and I'd love to hear from you uh, if you begin doing that practice. Um, please try to stay in touch. Now, in our, in our uh, last episode, we began our look at the 12 steps, and we were approaching it from the viewpoint of history. I really believe that the history has something to, to teach us uh, if we understand where the steps came from, how it was they were being worked in the in the earliest days, uh, I think you're going to find a much simpler program and a, and a much stronger program. So that's really the intent of this this series is to introduce you to that world uh, so that so that it will help you uh, in your own recovery. Um, so back in in the in the 1930s when when Bill Wilson got sober. Uh, and then Dr. Bob got sober, and the first 100 people or so uh, came into recovery. Uh, there was no 12-step uh, program. Uh, they all got sober pretty much in the Oxford group, and um, then they separated out uh, from it and, and began their own program, um, and they called that Alcoholics Anonymous. When Wilson was writing the book, uh, the book of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, uh, he wanted to center it around uh, around the program, and uh, he sat down to write about uh, a number of steps. What he was trying to do in that process was to create a series of steps that the alcoholics could go through um, so that they uh, wouldn't wiggle out of uh, the Oxford Group program was kind of loosey-goosey, and he, uh, he knew us alcoholics are kind of sneaky people. <laughs> and we we need to you know kind of hold our feet to the fire. So that's why he was uh, kind of determined to to put put the the program on paper and in form and and do it in ways that alcoholics couldn't uh, couldn't es escape from it. You know what I mean? Okay. So here's a here's a quote from um, Pass It On uh, about Bill writing the steps. This is AA literature. It says there that as he started to write, he asked for guidance, and that was their practice. Uh, when we get to the 11th step, um, that's what you're going to learn about, is that there was a form of prayer and meditation that they did in the early days of the program that has been totally lost. And so he, he was accustomed to doing that, and that's actually how the 12 steps came to be. So again, as he started to write, he asked for guidance, and he relaxed. The words began tumbling out with astonishing speed. He completed the first draft, 
in about half an hour, then kept on writing until he felt he should stop and review what he had written. Numbering the new steps, he found they added up to 12, a symbolic number. He thought of the 12 apostles and soon became convinced that the society should have 12 steps. Now, this episode uh, is going to be devoted to step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dot, 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 (laughs) that our lives had become unmanageable. I think you make a pretty good case that uh, of all of the 12 steps, it is probably the most important. And the reason for that is uh, without it, uh, nothing much is going to happen until we are... uh, ready to um, admit the truth of our own alcoholism, of our own addiction to uh, our innermost selves, as the the big book says, we're probably not going to make uh, too much progress with the uh, the program. Now, Wilson said that uh, he got steps 2 and 11 straight from Sam Shoemaker, um, the priest, the Episcopal priest who worked with him in New York City. and, and was the head of the Oxford group in the United States. So that accounts for steps two through 11. We'll get into those uh, in, in the coming uh, episodes. But that doesn't uh, tell us where step one came from or step 12. And I think you can make a, a pretty good case that step one derives in large part from Dr. William Silkworth. And Silkworth was the uh, medical director at Towns Hospital, where Bill Wilson uh, was hospitalized himself for treatment in in the course of about a year and a half. He had entered treatment uh, no fewer than four times. Silkworth uh, was a very gentle man, a very kind man. He loved alcoholics. Um, He really desperately wanted to help them, and and he wanted to help Bill and thought that uh, he showed a lot of promise uh, particularly the first couple of times that, that he was in there. Uh, this is a bright guy, energetic guy, uh, pretty young guy in his late 30s uh, at that time. And um, he felt like he was going to get it. But time after time, uh, Bill would leave there with high hopes and uh, would quickly uh, quickly fall again. Um Silkworth had what he called an allergy theory. You know, back in those days, that they didn't understand alcoholism uh, nearly as well as we do today. Uh, now we know it's a brain chemistry illness. Uh, they can uh, put us in the laboratory and light up our brains and uh, you taking alcohol, taking drugs. We can see the different parts of the brain's brain that lights up, and uh, but they didn't have that back then. So. Uh, what what Silkworth knew was that uh, God, alcoholics sure drink differently than other people, you know. Uh, and and he came up with what he called an allergy theory. <clears throat> it's a simple theory, kind of goes like this: that uh, physically, people can be allergic to different things. You can be allergic to penicillin. You can be allergic to pollen. You can be allergic <clears throat> to peanuts. And when the body comes in contact with, with those, uh, there is a reaction. And that was about the best he could do because he knew that when 
alcoholics came in contact with alcohol, there was a reaction. And the reaction was a physical craving that developed in them that did not develop in other people. So, so that when the alcoholic takes a drink, what is triggered physically is a craving for more. And this is, this is a, a very simple understanding of addiction and really how it works at a physical level. <clears throat> Here's, a, um, again, from Pass It On, a, a book uh, telling uh, about Bill's encounter with um, Silkworth. It says, Bill listened entranced as Silkworth explained his theory. For the first time in his life, Bill was hearing about alcoholism, not as a lack of willpower, not as a moral defect, but as a legitimate illness. It was Silkworth's theory, unique at the time, that alcoholism was the combination of this mysterious physical allergy and the compulsion to drink that alcoholism could no more be defeated by willpower than could tuberculosis. Bill's relief was immense. Now, I believe there are uh, <clears throat> two key words that Bill used in the writing of step one. I actually think there's a third word uh, that isn't present there, and we'll get to that in a while. But I think it's really important that, that people understand um, the difference between these two key, the two key words that are in the step. And those words, of course, are powerless and unmanageable. I remember um, uh, early in my, in my treatment um, a guy sat me down, and I, I had been through treatment uh, a couple of times and had failed. Uh, uh, didn't make it a four like Bill, but I, I, did, I, did, I did fail a couple of times. And uh, this fellow sat me down, and uh, he had really struggled with his own alcoholism. Uh, his name was Jim Powers. He, he's long dead now. And I, 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 I you know, I, I remember today uh, where I was sitting when he, when he taught me this, uh, I remember the, the room I was in. I, I, I remember so much about that because it was one of those eureka moments for, for me when the lights came on uh, and somebody had just explained alcoholism, my alcoholism, in a way that I could get it. And he explained step one in a way that I could get it filled in a few of the gaps over the years studying some of the history, but that man gave me the, the key. And um, this is what I want to pass on to individuals because it was a simple explanation that he gave, and it's one that really jives with the history. Uh, and um, so powerless, what, what does powerless mean? I believe it, it means that, that physical allergy, that, that if you think of being powerless over alcohol, think of being powerless over peanuts, think of being powerless over, over penicillin, all right? 
when you take them, something is going to happen. Um, and, and, and it's really important. You know, people who are allergic to penicillin or to peanuts, they take that pretty damn seriously. They don't fool around with them. They don't go near them. All right. They have admitted to their innermost self that they are allergic to them and that something really terrible is going to happen if they uh, if they encounter them. So, um, of course, the encounter what, what we experience is is the craving. Um, and, and the man told me, uh, you know, you're going to hear people say a lot of things about powerless. Uh, what what are you powerless over? You know, over the years, I've heard people say, well, I'm powerless over people, places, and things. Um, that would have driven that man nuts, and, and it kind of drives me nuts, too, because an addict has got to understand uh, at the deepest level of his comprehension that he is powerless over alcohol. When is he powerless over it? When he drinks it. All right. I'm not powerless over it uh, when I'm walking down the street. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in, in, in a minute about the, the mental part of the illness. But the physical part of the illness is where I believe, and I think historically you can make a pretty darn good case, that that's what Wilson was talking about when he said we are powerless over alcohol. All right, that we don't drink like other people, that it triggers this craving, um, and um, and once I go to it, I'm off to the races. Um, so um, when I take alcohol into my system, my experience was I drank too much. I always drank more than I intended to drink. All right. I want to get high. I want to go to a certain level. Uh, and, 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 you know, but I don't want another DWI. I don't want another fight with my wife. I don't want, you know, uh, be gone for three days. I just want the high. But I don't have a choice about that. Just just like any anybody who's allergic, this is what's going to happen. So I really encourage uh, people to think of it that way that um, that um, powerlessness is the physical element uh, that goes along with this illness. So what happens when you when when you drink more than you intended to drink? You get drunk, all right? That's what happens. All right. And then when you get drunk, you get into all sorts of problems. You get physical problems that go along with this illness. You get you get uh, legal problems that go along with this illness. Uh, you get employment problems that happen. You get family problems that happen. All all of the consequences of being drunk or stoned. Uh, that's what happens to us. Um, and then and then what what do we, what is it we attempt to do? Most of us will attempt somewhere along the line uh, to quit. All right. To to to. How do I escape from this thing? How do I get out from under this thing? All right. So my hope is, if if you're an addict, that you've made an attempt uh, to quit uh, before this. I know I did. Um, and so 
I ask people, well, well, how long did you go? You know, and someone will say, well, I quit and uh, I was serious about it. I was determined to do it. Uh, and those are important elements. It's not just, well, I think I'll quit. No, you're, I'm talking about really trying to quit. How long did you go? Um, two weeks? A month? That's, that's a long time. Uh, six months? A year? I, we, we, we're, we are able to go for a period of time. The amount of time uh, varies. <clears throat> it's not so important. But what happens eventually is the other word kicks in. And, and that other word is unmanageable. Now, I believe the big mistake that many people make in 12-step in programs is they look at the, uh, the consequences of their drinking, uh, the consequences of their drug use. They look, they look at uh, all the problems that came along, and they say, damn, my life is unmanageable. Now, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I, I drank a lot. I got in trouble, and uh, I never once uh, woke up and said, damn, my life is sure unmanageable. I never used the you word <laughs> All right? until, until I came into the program. But in the program, I heard people using it. Now, the history, I think, can teach us something really important about where that unmanageable word came from and why it is very likely that Bill Wilson chose that specific word when he was writing his 12 steps. All right? It's an Oxford group word. And he was sober in the Oxford group. And he was used to hearing people talk about unmanageability. And so when he, when he uses it, uh, that's, he's referring to something very different than just getting drunk and having all of those problems. All right? Where'd the word come from? It was a, there's a story uh, behind it. It's um, the Oxford group people. Uh, Frank Bookman was the founder of the Oxford group. And uh, he was in India at one time on a kind of a mission trip. So they're, they're an evangelical um, Christian, Christian group uh, out to change the world, out to help people. Uh, and God knows alcoholics needed help. So a lot of, a lot of uh, us uh, wound up following them. And that's how Wilson uh, got himself into the deal. But they're, so they're traveling. And uh, Bookman is over in India. And he's uh, at a school uh, at the base of the Himalaya Mountains. It's an exotic story. <laughs> and uh, and the people at the school tell him, well, we have this student here, uh, Dr. Bookman. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to have to send him home. He's, he's nothing but trouble. Um, he's lying, cheating, stealing, uh, whatever. Um, lots of problems. And so Bookman spends some time with the boy. Uh, they ask him to do that. And, and what, what Bookman does is, is uh, he shares some of his own defeats. You know, usually, usually when you get in trouble, people yell at you and they scream at you and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. But Bookman took a, a different uh, tack with, uh, with people. He told them his own problems and then how he had victory uh, over his difficulties. And that's what he did with Victor. 
And Victor uh, turned his life around. He changed. He surrendered. Uh, he asked God for help. And he did it by saying a prayer. It was a simple prayer, but it was a prayer that Bookman liked and that the people in the Oxford group liked. And his prayer was this, Lord, I cannot manage my life. Manage it for me. And there's that element of manageability uh, so that when Wilson was, was searching for a word, there's the word he chose. So what is unmanageable? When is my life unmanageable? You know, I think that's a question every addict has got to ask. My life is not unmanageable when I'm drinking or using. Then it's a mess. My life is unmanageable when I'm not drinking and not using and trying my very best to stay sober. And I can't. That's what, what Wilson meant by unmanageability. That there's in addition to a physical part of the illness, and this goes right back to um, um, his doctor, Silkworth, there was another part of the illness. So part of it's physical and part of it is mental. The mental is an obsession that I have with alcohol. My mind, my best thinking, my best willpower uh, is not sufficient. I get driven back to using once again, all right? That is an unmanageable life, all right? Um, someone said, my, my life is unmanageable by me. See, that by me, that, that's the element. So when is my life unmanageable? When I'm not drinking. I haven't had a drink in, in almost 46 years. My life is still unmanageable. I have that mental quirk inside of me that, that is prone to telling me, yeah, come on, you can go back and do it. You can do it. Uh, God, you haven't had a drink in all these years, blah, blah, blah. That's the insanity. And that's the mental obsession that makes our lives unmanageable, that makes us, uh, puts us in a position where we have to have help. And that help, of course, has to come from outside of ourselves. You know, which which just makes perfect sense. Uh, I since I'm the the cause of my own problem, it's my own thinking that got me here. I can't rely on my own thinking uh, to get sober. I have to rely on something else or someone else, uh, and that's what really opens the door then to the um, to the rest of the of the steps. <clears throat> now I said there was there was actually three words. And, and the third word uh, is not actually present in, in, the, in the first step. And that word is, is when you put together uh, in one person, someone who is powerless over alcohol, and they have an unmanageable life, they have a mental obsession that drives them back to alcohol, all right, what you've got there is a vicious circle that, that uh, <clears throat> the last thing I should do as an alcoholic is drink. Well, the most normal thing for me to do as an alcoholic is to drink because that's part of my illness. 
It doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to make sense. It's the illness. Um, our families look at us and say, why is he doing it? Stop doing that, for God's sakes. You know? Well, if I, if I could, I would. But I can't. I can't. And it's that experience of I can't that, that is, the, is the word that's missing in step one. The word is hopeless. The word is hopeless. I want to read, uh, uh, took some notes on, uh, from the big book, um, and encourage you to do this yourself. Just go through the first several chapters of the book and see how often that word comes up. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. That's from Bill's story. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. Again, Bill's story. While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. We have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. We've come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. Uh, he begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. Wilson said um, he didn't get um, step one or 12 from Shoemaker, uh, so he got one in part from uh, Silkworth, but the other part I believe he got from William James, the Harvard uh, psychologist. Bill was given a, a book of, uh, called Varieties of Religious Experiences during his last, uh, his last um, uh, detox at Towns Hospital. He devoured that book. He said he wasn't much of a reader, but that book answered many, many prob uh, questions that he had ab about his problem. Um, and, and one of the core elements there is that, is that James takes uh, psychic changes, uh, spiritual experience. He takes them seriously. He does studies of about 50 people. Some of them were drunks. And he says there's a common denominator uh, to each of their stories. And that was ego deflation at depth. Those are the doctor's words. Ego deflation at depth. <laughs> you get the stuffing knocked, knocked out of you. And, 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 and then it's like there's nothing left. Um, it's, it's deeper, it's deeper, it's deeper um, until that ego is surrendered and ready for a psychic change. Um, it requires the crushing uh, of our egos. I don't, I, don't, I don't know anybody who gets here uh, in, in a way other than that. And, and you know, I, I was a therapist for a number of years. I remember sitting in group with uh, two guys. Uh, one was there because uh, his lawyer said it'd be good for him to go to treatment. He had uh, been in a DWI, killed four people. And uh, sitting right next to him was a guy who checked himself into treatment uh, because he had uh, gotten drunk and missed his son's birthday. And, and that guy had sworn on, on his mother's grave that uh, 
his alcohol, excuse me, his, yeah, his alcohol use, his drinking would never, ever affect his kids. And it did. And he was a puddle. All right. One guy got sober and the other didn't. Uh, the guy, the guy who missed the kid's birthday, he got sober. I was in touch with him. Uh, yeah. Last time I talked to him, he had 30 some odd years. Um, his ego got crushed. <clears throat> but, but what does it uh, can be different things for different people. Wilson writes this. These gifts of grace, whether they come in a rush or very gradually, were all founded on a basis of hopelessness. He's writing about uh, uh, William James's book. The recipients were people who in some controlling area of life found themselves in a situation that could not be gotten over, around, or under. Their defeat had been absolute, and so was mine. Um, I, 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 I don't think you can understand step one without including um, a deep understanding of the hopelessness that goes with it. Um, um, so step one, lessons that I'm powerless, that when I drink, I don't drink like other people. When I drink, this is what happens to me. Craving sets in. That craving leads to uh, more than I should. Uh, I would want to drink. Uh, boom. I'm drunk and in trouble. My life is unmanageable. When I, when I try to quit, I can't quit because part of my illness uh, sends me right back to the very thing that is doing me in. Um, step, <laughs> you know, step one sucks. <laughs> if, I, if I could sum it up in one word, it sucks. There's but it is also kind of like a launching pad for a rocket. Um, if, if you are crushed, uh, I remember when, when, um, when I uh, hit my bottom, um, I had run out of places to run. It, it was like the end of the road. And I didn't understand psychologically what was going on then, but it was like a crack in my ego system. That was step one for me that um, I could not go on the way I was. Uh, after a couple of treatment failures, I went back to a counselor I had worked with in the past, and it was like I turned myself in, and I said, what do I have to do? And he said, are you willing to go to any lengths to, to get sober? And, and without a thought, I said, absolutely, absolutely. I got to the same place Bill got to. I got there at 27. People can get there at 18. You know, it, it's not a matter of age and it's not a matter of uh, uh, even how much you drank or drugged. It's a matter of has your ego been cracked? Are you down and are you ready to uh, to do it differently this time? Um, so I think that's a uh, that's a good way to get get us going on on, on the 12 steps. Uh, step one, uh, hope you'll um, uh, check out our website. Uh, the two-way prayer website, uh, easy to find and, and try to follow uh, along on Facebook. And um, I'm going to try to make these um, um, these episodes on, on the steps uh, as simple as I can. Um, I, I believe this is a simple program for very complicated people. So hope this was helpful to you. God bless and keep coming back.